Welcome to The Adapter's Advantage, the podcast that shares insider stories about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Get ready for an inspiring conversation about adapting to change from Alego, the all-in-one sales enablement platform built for success in a hybrid world. Let's dive right in. Hi, I'm Mark Magnaca. I want to welcome you to the next episode of the Adapter's Advantage podcast. Today, my guest is Michael Shine. He's the head hype man at Microfame Media, a company that specializes in making consultants and coaches famous in their fields. His writings appeared in a wide range of publications from Fortune to Inc. to Huffington Post, and he's a speaker for international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States to the southeastern coast of China. His latest book is The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. I love that title. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you. We were veering with uh, Borat to see who can have the longest subtitle. <laughs> that was really the plan there. <laughs> well, that's kind of like you almost expect Borat to be in there, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. He's a master, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. At, <clears throat> really, some of what we're going to be talking about. So, Absolutely. Michael, with that as a setup, um, when you meet people for the first time, and they know of you as an author, maybe they even know this is the title of your book, and they ask you, so what do you do? What do you say? Now I'm very direct. I mean, for a long time, I really hedged around uh, the issue. I would say I ran a marketing company for many years, and at one time I said I was a writer because that's how I felt you know, at, at, at heart. But um, I tell them I'm a hype man. I, I just come out and say it because you know, a lot of people think of, of this thing that I call hype as a negative. And to me, it's completely amoral. There's nothing positive or negative about it. And it's how you use it. And in fact, I think it's in, in many ways that we can talk about not only more effective than what we call marketing, but in some ways more moral than what we call marketing. Um, so we can talk about how I view hype and all of that. But I just tell people I'm a hype man. Yeah. So I looked it up. Uh, because I wanted to be clinically accurate, Michael, and I think what's interesting is so, um, in in the Webster's Dictionary, it's extravagant or intensive publicity or promotion. Quote: She relied on hype and headlines to stoke up interest in her music. There you go. Now the second definition of it is a deception carried out for the sake of publicity. So it's interesting that there's a very legitimate rationale for hype. And then, and then there is the pejorative use of the word, which is basically saying you're using hype to cover up something that's not, it's not really good, but we're, you're sort of hyping it. Um, yeah. Is that part of the rub, you think? I, I've chosen to define it differently. I've just taken artistic license. And, and the way I define it is any, any actions that drive a huge amount of emotion from a large number of people to get them to take an action that you want them to take. So that action that you want them to take can be an extremely evil action. It can be starting a riot, but it can be a very positive action. And, and I think that's why you see those two definitions. I, I, I don't think that these strategies are inherently evil. They just are products of how human beings operate typically in groups. We don't see the world rationally. What I think happens though, is that people who aren't good people, people who are let's just say have antisocial personality disorder, right. they don't 
have as much compunction about doing whatever it takes. You know, the rest of us might say, yeah, I understand that it's important for me to downplay my negative qualities, even if I'm not lying, to make myself almost a larger than life figure. But I don't know, you know, I really should give a few disclaimers about what I'm saying. You know, right. in kindergarten, I wasn't able to read, so I shouldn't say I'm good at reading. Right. Whereas someone who's a sociopath, honestly, will just yeah. naturally do that. So. Right. And there are reasons for that that I talk about in the book. So the, the problem with that is, and this comes down to the ethical part, as long as you have a moral code, as long as you're not deceiving people, which I very much don't believe anyone should do, and as long as you're not making people's lives better, if you let the only people who can tap into group human emotion be those horrible people, those sociopaths, those yes. antisocial people, the good ideas never get heard. They get swallowed up because whether we like it or not, human beings don't see the world accurately. They, they see the world very emotionally. They see the world differently in groups than they do as individuals. So who do you want to have that skill set? I really went off your topic on your question. No, it's a but, great, my, my yeah. two, two things that actually come right back to, I'm gonna come back to the band for a minute because as you were just talking, I was thinking about without naming any specific politicians, I can tell you that there's no question just through the 20th century and, and more recently in, in this century, um, some of the best politicians have been masters at leveraging wow. the tool of hype. No and question. some of them may be people that you think a lot of, whether it was John F. Kennedy, who had a massive hype machine behind him, or Martin Ronald Luther Reagan. King was was the best. I mean, he he none of that peaceful protest would have worked without his media savvy. Absolutely, absolutely true. Uh, so, so there's that piece. But then I want to talk to you about one other person who was a master of promotion, a master of hype before we even thought of it as a thing, and that's Frank Sinatra. And you think about the the 1940s, World War II is going on, 1942, 43. Sinatra is in New York City at the Paramount Theater, and these Bobby Sox girls, as you may know, start what they call they start fainting, and his publicist uh, manufactures a word swoon the girls really? were swooning yes this is a true well, story. this is great i've i've never i know a lot of these stories i have not heard this story yeah i'm a big frank sinatra fan and so yeah. what ends up happening is that frank sinatra literally becomes a teen heartthrob overnight interestingly for all the gis who were fighting overseas um he became an object of derision because he wasn't fighting overseas he was on you know, on the home front and their girlfriends were falling in love with him, right? So it was this whole thing. So Sinatra's, uh, in a sense, Sinatra's career uh, defined what you're describing from a musical standpoint. There was hype at the beginning when it was really about, uh, he was this young, dynamic, attractive performer, but then over time he became legitimatized to the extent that at the end of his career he was known as the chairman of the board right. because he was literally the chairman of the board of his company, Reprise Records, right? So oh, was his I, company Reprise Records? Yes, it was. I didn't know that. Yep. So he he you know he uh, he tried to um, like many artists who were unhappy with the label label movement. He became the the chairman. The the uh, the label was later consumed by A and M or one of the other ones. But he was that's where they started calling him it. Anyway. You didn't come from the, the Bobby Sox era, so uh, you were in the punk rock world. Yeah. Um, wh why was, I think of the clash, and I think about some of the, you know, the early punk stuff that took off in the US. Um, why was hype important in that world? 
it's it, it's funny that you bring up the clash because i i do love the clash i mean i played in punk bands but i also just loved and still like that kind of music quite a bit but what i find really interesting about the clash in particular is that everyone thinks of them as the most quote unquote authentic band there is they call them the only band that matters um they lacked some of that sense of humor that the other bands had because they were so you know serious about politics right they were put together that was an assembled band wow so everyone thinks of of punk as like you know a bunch of friends living on the streets who know each other right you know um and this blew me away i found out about this years ago when i was just reading about the clash i've always been interested in this stuff but i didn't do this for a living but um you know there was a mick jones the guitar player was was sort of um mi middle class kid who played a lot of guitar in his bedroom you know they described him as a bedroom guitar player yeah and their manager bernard rhodes Bernie Rhodes worked for uh, Malcolm McLaren, who was the Sex Pistols manager. So he, he left and he said, we, we, we need to assemble a band that's even better than the Sex Pistols, who has more longevity. So um, Mick Jones and Bernie Rhodes put the band together. It was there was no one else involved. So the first thing they did is Joe Strummer was playing in another popular band called the 101ers and they basically stalked him out and you know staked him out and and convinced him to be in the band and he had this sort of rootsy look they were like a rockabilly type band pop right. and he cut off his hair you know he 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 did all of that then the bass player didn't really play bass he became quite good eventually but he's extremely good looking so they brought him into the band for that reason and Mick Jones taught him how to play bass cuz he looked good yeah. And their first show was an industry showcase. They wore costumes, you know, they, they put on these jumpsuits and splattered them with paint. Yeah. The thing, it, I mean, they believed in what they did, but it was an art project. It was a boy band in many ways. So I mean, they, I was gonna it was, say, it it was had complete, like, yeah. yeah. Elements of the monkeys there too. Yeah, right? like in this 100%. Wow. So that's a great example of um, really using hype to create something. But, but in that case, kind of what it created still ended up being a very powerful piece of art. Because if- So, you, so I, I wanna comment on that. I think there's a misconception on two fronts. To me, there's this, uh, what I think people think of is even marketing, not just hype, is that you create something and then you figure out how to market it. And, and business people have no problem with that, but they look at it as a line item on a balance sheet and artists and those sorts of creators look at it as a necessary evil. Right. And and why I use the word hype and why I was inspired by punk, to me, the best music, punk or glam rock or things like that, not the best music, but the best rock music, the hype and the art, the hype and the product were one in the same. And the hype added color to the product. So that element of the clash made the clash better. Yeah. They, they look good. They wear slogans on their outfits yeah. they yeah. have a good looking bass player which makes them more rock and roll there's nothing wrong with that if you just heard their songs it would be a guy chanting into a microphone with fast guitars that was part of the thing and 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 i think that if people could if if you could say to yourself instead of thinking i created this genius thing and now i have to market it what a pain in the neck you know what i mean if you said instead how can I create something where the marketing, the promotion, the hype is baked into the thing itself and that they both reinforce each other? That's what I always, that's why I'm much more inspired by 
punk and, and these things than I am by other businesses in, in some regard. And then the second thing I'll say is that, you know, there are all these gurus out there, like a Tony Robbins, like a Simon Sinek, and they give all of this advice and people follow their advice. Yep. What I always tell people is don't follow their advice. If everyone who followed their advice was getting good advice, they'd all be as rich as Tony Robbins and right. Simon Sinek. Right. Watch what they do. And I got that lesson from rock and roll because the clash was always, they created this image of, we don't even play our instruments, you know, uh, it, like this concept that you just find someone three chords in the truth. So all these people who followed in their wake yeah. followed the myth and created these horrible bands. You know what I mean? Where's ah, the clap? Pay yes. attention to what they do. They built that thing like a, you know, like an That's enterprise. a brilliant, oh, Michael, that's just a brilliant insight. And, and I'm gonna connect this in a moment to um, the implications for so many people in our audience for this podcast relative to LinkedIn, relative to personal branding. So so stay tuned because this is all gonna yeah. this is all gonna connect. I do have to just reference two things that um, I consider the check and balance in the hype world. And the check and balance is that when you take someone like Elvis, who with Colonel Tom was effectively manufactured, right? He had all of the things going for him. He was good looking, yeah. he had a great voice, right? But he also was immensely talented, yeah. right? Sure. So, so then you go from Elvis to the Beatles, and the art form of hype had been had been raised, and their manager um, Brian Epstein recognized if they could get him on the Ed Sullivan program, it would be a hype machine the likes of which, and and really we almost have never even seen anything to this day quite at that level. No, right? I don't think so. Yeah, worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, and having just watched Michael the uh, the Get Back program, right? What you come to realize is, oh my God, these guys were just so talented, yeah, right? Brilliant. Yeah. So, so without, I, I think the beauty of it is though, without the hype machine, um, it's entirely possible that they wouldn't have had the artistic creativity. So, to your point, it's almost like a virtuous circle. If there's no hype to keep the thing going, then the machine that's making it doesn't make it. Right. And, and the flip side of the coin is the one-hit wonder. There's so many. Uh, performers who had one song and and uh, there was temporary hype so to me the real question is what what can you learn from this that has sustainability because a lot of it can be manufactured sort of flash in the pan but in general if there's not some whether it's Sinatra Elvis the Beatles or even you know more more modern uh, people the ability to sustain it shows that the hype is a magnifier rather than some kind of cover-up of um, something that's not really talented. Uh, it's such a great point. I think about this all the time. So that's it. You know, I encourage everyone out there to have really good stuff, have a good product. Yeah. Right. Because hype without a good product is con artistry. Exactly. But the reason exactly. I study the con artists is because if you can use these strategies to manufacture trash, Imagine what you can do to, 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 to promote, not manufacture, but promote trash. Imagine yes. what you can do to promote something good. So I'll give you an example. And I'm not calling the person I'm about to discuss a con artist, but there's a guy online named um, Ty Lopez. Mm -hmm. And um, I know some people who took his, he sells these information courses. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but from everyone I've talked to who have actually taken them and the things I see, there's not that much there that's very original. I mean, he has these 67 steps. It's basically like read a lot of books and work real hard. And he charges lots of money. Now he's in crypto. Like whenever there's a new phase, he becomes sure. the expert in that phase. 
Um, but his his hype is 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 fantastic. You know, he um from the very beginning, he he was showing himself in a mansion. It came out later. He 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 rented the mansion to to to, to you know, but now he has a mansion because he needs the money. Um he has a very famous internet ad, a YouTube ad where it shows him in a garage. People make fun of this ad, but it made him millions. He's in a garage. And he says, this is my Lamborghini. And he shows his Lamborghini, which I also believe was, was leased. But he says, here's my Lamborghini. But what I'm really more proud of, and he pans over the camera, is um, his bookshelf, you know? And he says that he reads a book a day. Mm-hmm. Like, I read a lot. I was a writer before. Who, who read? I mean, no one reads a yeah, book a day. Right. I mean, he scans a book yeah. a day. or scans. So my point in saying this is that I don't even know what he sells, but he, he has legions of followers it's just some personal improvement program my point is what if you dissected what made that work and tried to extract the principles because hype principles repeat themselves there are only so many so why does that thing about reading a book a day work so well because people like you know people um are inevitably drawn to what i call the magus which is a magician-like figure someone who can do over the top feats right how can you apply that to your own career? Is there a way to take a little known trait that you have and blow it up and emphasize it? Now imagine how good that is if your product and your service is actually awesome and yeah. game-changing. So I like to dissect, you know, Brian Epstein saw very show busy, mediocre talents dressing in matching suits and being real showbiz. And he took the Beatles who are geniuses. And he said, get out of your leather jacket, stop smoking on stage. You don't look presentable, you know, and and he turned them into a product. Yes. But they were the Beatles. Right. So they became the biggest musical act the world has ever seen because it's four geniuses. Yep. Yep. Including Ringo. Absolutely. And who, by the way, was, you know, he was a master himself at this. Yeah. what, what What I was attracted to, Michael, and the reason I want to talk about the book is there's so much here, like even as you just described it, I remember following somebody in the stock market 25 years ago, and he's still very well known, but his claim to fame was he won an options trading contest, and he he, he made a 444%. I mean, everything about it I love. The story. 444%, the number, yeah, that's right? great. <laughs> and he, you know, he actually, so he did win this one contest. Um, it was an options trading contest, and it was you know measured. Now, he never had performance like that, because I followed right. him for 25 years. Never happened again. But as you're describing it, even the story you told about the guy with reading books, there's there's almost like a process there about legitimatization, uh-huh. which is to say, Completely. because I read all these books, I'm not telling you I have all the answers, but I'm I'm in effect leveraging all these other yeah, people that, that you it. don't have time to. That, that, that's right, you know, for right. example. And then he created a product where he packaged summaries of books for people. That's good, you know. I mean, it's, it's He's, I, again follow what he does, not what he advises. He gives all these kids advice, like read a book a day, and they're all half broke. Right. Follow what he does, you know. Right. I mean, follow that, you know. Do do the four hundred four your version of the four hundred forty four percent return and milk that for all it's worth. Take yeah. your the ideas that are getting the most traction and package them, in, in, and have other people do the work instead of you applying it directly. A lot of hype artists do that. reverse engineer the packaging techniques of these people set up a moral code you know don't lie don't make people's lives worse make them better have something good to sell 
And I know it can be done because I see people using the exact same strategies to promote genius things. Yeah. And well, just good. To, I mean, Ryan Holiday is a guy I really like. His his products and books are amazing, and he's the best hype artist out there. Well, it's interesting because even as you've just described it, I'm, I'm realizing there is somewhat of a fine line between where does hype intersect with branding. And as mm -hmm. you just described that, Michael, I remember um, researching Volvo, the car company Volvo, yeah. because I knew that they effectively owned the word safety. Yeah. And then when I, when I researched it, according to the National Highway Safety Transportation Board, Volvo was not the safest car in the United States, nor was it during this period of time. Coincidentally, the car was a Ford LTD Crown Victoria. <laughs> and, I, and then I wondered, like, why is that car the safest? Then I realized, well, wait a minute. There's thousands and thousands of those cars being driven by police, right, and government right. people. Right. And, you know, in general, they're not speeding as much. So statistically, that car was safer than the Volvo because there's a much smaller number of people driving Volvo. That said, Volvo melt safety better than any other car company. And it really became associated with sort yeah. of the ethos of the company. So, so sometimes it can be, you know, um, based in fact, and sometimes it can it can become part of who you are. One of my favorite examples of this is uh, in the twenties. There was a very uh, successful slash famous famous in our world copywriter, advertising copywriter named Eugene Schwartz. He was one of the first people to do ad copywriting in a way that wasn't just announcing products. You know, before before him, it was kind of like, oh, you know, this vacuum, I mean, whatever the tool was at the time, this broom has the straightest bristles and the yeah. nicest wood. And yeah. he, he used a psychological approach to copywriting. So one of the famous stories um, of him that really illustrates exactly what you're saying, how you can own something like that, is um, his company was hired by Schlitz beer, which now is considered a really bad beer. And there's a reason for that. But at the time, it was considered good. I mean, it was a, it was a decent beer. So um, he always started by doing a whole lot of research about the product. So he went to the factory, to the brewery, the industrial brewery, and he talked to some of the workmen on the floor. And he saw them doing kind of a strange thing that he hadn't seen on a piece of equipment. And he said, what is that? He goes, oh, that's cold filtration. That's that's something we do. And he said, is that, you know, that's so that's something Schlitz does. He goes, no, that's that's how you make beer on an industrial scale. It's just something you do, you know. <laughs> um, and so he but no one ever talked about it. And it sounds yes. good. So his the Schlitz campaign was our cold filtration process. And it was true. Yes. And now no one else could talk about it. And it yes. blew everything up. So so sometimes it's just about finding something really small and owning it before other people own it. That is a powerful distinction, Michael, and that applies We're gonna, as we pivot to the, to the world of, uh, I'm gonna consider not just speakers and consultants, I'm gonna say that to some extent that the best salespeople that I know across the board have an element of consultant in them. Yeah. They effectively act as a buyer's consultant. And so a lot of the same things, whether you're technically a professional speaker or consultant is beside the point. Uh, there's things you can abstract that we're gonna talk about here. But just briefly, what what caused you to start Microfame Media? It it's a long story. I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version. If anyone knows what Cliff Notes are anymore, Cliff Notes. I think they call them. I, I would call them Cliff Notes. I think it's Cliff's Notes. But okay. um, <laughs> I found that out as an adult. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I worked for a uh, corporate job after I did the band thing and tried to make that happen. I did what 
anyone would do who needs to make a living. And I got a job and I started to do well there. I started at a low level and I was there for like a decade. And so by the time I left, I, I, I was um, an executive. Um, and I learned a lot in the beginning, but by the end, I was just there out of fear and I was really miserable. And I saw my life, you know, I had wanted to be a novelist at one point. I'd wanted to start a record label. So I was kind of like, I'm in this company that runs call centers, basically, uh, customer service centers, you know, and um, it, it's hard to get out of that industry once you're in it. You really see people getting stuck in that industry and moving from vendor to client and this and that. So I, I said, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. I can't, I need to. I had an infant at the time. I need to support my family. And I had come across an article where people were writing white papers and you could make three to $5,000. And I knew there was a need for write white papers or I thought there was a need in my industry, which it turned out there wasn't. But my idea was I could write a $5,000 white paper every week and make you know six figures, dumbest business plan in the world, but it was enough to leave. And um, I tried to become a, a copywriter and I really struggled to make, I mean, I, you know, I'm a good writer and, and I've always been considered a good writer and people who ended up hiring me um, stuck with me, but um, I just couldn't attract clients. I was really bad at what we're calling marketing and really bad at sales, ironically. Um, and so, yeah, I looked back at my punk rock past after almost losing all my savings and saying, can I be a little more contrarian can I just be do, yeah. do this kind of stuff and I'm um, long story short it worked I, I I put together a strategy that was kind of adversarial and benevolently mischievous and I started to build a successful copywriting practice so what happened was I kept running into consultants because consultants I'm really into ideas to me ideas are what I live for getting good ideas and audience and kind of minimizing the impact of bad ideas I like coming up with ideas it's my favorite thing to do in the company um, and I like good ideas, getting an audience. And um, I just noticed that the few consultants that I had who were writing clients, the ones who often were the best at what they did. I remember one guy, he, he saved all these lives in a hospital system because of the, the you know, frontline changes that his systems, you know, put out there. It, it was, everything was disorganized and he had this really innovative system for organizing things cheaply. But he was so bad at, promoting himself. And even worse, he was so reluctant to promote himself. You know, he, he, he thought it was beneath him. He used to complain yes. about how all the people who had worse ideas, you know, got all the yep. audience because they were promoters and this and that. And then all, and then self, on the other self promoters, by the way, right. That's he would say self promoters. He would say self promoters. That was exactly the word. Uh -uh. And then, um, on the other hand, I, 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 on the far end of the spectrum, I would see all these people who I thought weren't really helping people at all who were so good at it. And I, I just set myself the challenge. I said, what if I could use some of this stuff I learned to get the idea creators of the world, consultants and the best idea creators in the world right. to, um, to, to, to succeed. And, and so I started, um, it evolved into an, it, in the beginning, it was an agency. I would work with consultants and I didn't call it hype at the time, but I would use these hype strategies to get them audiences. And we, we, we had some quite a bit of success there. And then, um, I wrote this book and it turned out that there, you know, people didn't just want us to do the work for them. They wanted to become hype artists. So now we have a program where we actually work with a lot of companies where, we stand next to them and we help them design the hype campaigns and hype strategies and help them test them. But they actually go out into the world and put one in, foot in front of the other to do it. So by the time, you know, they've worked with us for a while, they become hype artists themselves. 
So, so let's move on um, to this idea of personal branding. And I, I want to hear your viewpoint on, on um, what is the intersection between personal branding and hype in the virtual world, and, and what do you think is most important for people who are in sales to understand about this topic? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of overlap. I think with as with a lot of this kind of stuff, the boundaries are are fuzzy. I think the concept of personal branding is the idea that in the internet era, especially if you're selling ideas, people want to know who the idea creator is, right? They 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 want that person to be uh, front and center and 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 know what the legitimacy is. So yeah, I think that's an aspect of hype, but I also think it's hyper-specific to the internet era um, and hyper-specific to the thought leadership industry. Um, so what I always try to do is get under the hood and figure out what are the universal principles. If someone is, an, is a successful personal brander, is that just that he's good at using or she is good at using Instagram? Or is it they that they understand the same universal principles that'll that'll stay solid when the technology changes? But yeah, I think there's a lot of bleed between the concepts. Well, I'm going to take you back to a comment you made about Tony Robbins, who who undoubtedly has informed much of my worldview because he was an early mentor for me. Yeah. But what I know you probably know, but many of our listeners don't, is that Tony's hype machine started with doing a program called the Firewalk. Yeah. And, and the Firewalk, he got a cover story in Life magazine in 1984. The Firewalk program wasn't his. Most of the content from the seminar that it came before the Firewalk was actually not his either. But his packaging and his presentation, going back to the point you made earlier, were unique. He was yeah. actually better at delivering the content than, than the authors from whom he borrowed that content. It's usually the case, yeah. Right, so, so he put together something new that was better, but what people don't realize is that's what put him on the map, and from that he got into the, the infomercial business, right? And then later kind of followed a, a, a Sinatra-like path of becoming more legitimate, quote legitimate, working with big companies and the government and those yeah. kinds of things. But it, but it started sort of the breakthrough into the ether, if you will, came from hype. And that brings up another point, something I talk about in the book and that I really emphasize in general is that it's much more effective to find out what your insecurities and weaknesses are, are and spin them into your strength, your public strength and the other way around. So yes, I say I that people, that yeah. So I say that people should present themselves as a magus, a magician, a larger than life character, but most of us none of us are perfect and most of us aren't larger than life characters until we make ourselves larger than life exactly. characters so if 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 let's say hey i'm a hard worker so i'm going to really emphasize that yeah you and everybody else you know what i mean right but so look what tony robbins did he was someone without credentials yep that's a real weakness when you're yes, selling personal betterment yes i'm going to try to turn people's lives around and help them reframe their thinking but i have no Ex formal expertise or certification. So what he did was he said, you know what? That's what makes me wonderful. Yeah, I because I was in a 400 square foot bachelor pad and, and I, I did it for myself. I've, I've done it for this. In fact, the therapy, the, 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 the certifications are what make people rigid in their thinking, unlike me. Yeah. So what I would advise anyone listening is if you're struggling to figure out what your thing is, what your, as you called it, personal brand is, instead of thinking, what am I the best in the world at? Write down all the things you're not good at, all your, your, your insecurities, your setbacks, your weaknesses, 
and then think what's the embedded strength in there and then blow that up I, I, that, that's always I worked. I, I think that works really really and i, I think the, the best hype artists they, they do that almost to a yeah. one you know you know i'm going to just tell you a funny one related to that michael what you just described i'm going to call it the george costanza method right <laughs> it's the opposite of what you would think to do in that given moment right because right. you're right our natural thing is let's talk about what i'm good at but, but what's interesting, I'll never forget, and this, this will date me a, a little bit, but you may remember this. There was a, a real estate promoter. His name was Tom Vu. This is back in the in the late 80s. I vaguely he, remember this. Okay, so the- Did he, Was he on a yacht in, yes, in, in a commercial? Yeah, I remember this guy. But, but yeah. this is what he said, Michael, I'll never forget it. He had these beautiful women all around Yeah, him. I remember. That was so funny. And this was the yeah. script. Look at me, I'm yeah. Tom Vu, I'm ugly. And look yeah. what I've done. Yeah. And, and that was like, he. so he took that it's... thing and he turned it into a power because then people would watch it and think, you know what, who is he? Like he's that, a that's, immigrant that's it. who like totally turned things around. That's so it. I, I think that, you know, it's sort of an extreme example, but the idea of recognizing that in your weakness, there's, there's a way to position your strength, brilliant. So Andy Warhol, right, who is an artist, first and foremost, was an artist, but he was a really, really good business man you know yes, and um to the point where he was at the end of his life cranking out portraits of celebrities for like fifty thousand dollars a pop that took him like 30 minutes to do yep. you know with a team of people so the thing about him was he wasn't just shy as a young person he was he had social anxiety he was pathologically shy like he could not talk to people so what a lot of people would tell someone like that to do, and I'm sure people on this show have said this, and it's not always bad advice, take a Toastmasters class, get therapy, you know, confront your fears. It's vital to learn how to talk to people and give a firm handshake and this and that. But he didn't do that. What he did was he took that weakness and he made it into the cornerstone of his persona. So when he painted the Campbell soup cans, yep. um, the press would go up to him and and they would say, or a member of the press famously once said to him, why did you paint soup? And he goes, because I like soup and kind of looked at the ground. And there's and they thought to themselves, there's no way he just painted because he liked soup. What a weirdo. And they talked about it and they, yes. they molded. I mean, apparently he had a famously limp handshake, you know. Yeah. But he made and he he made that people would just clamor to get him to say more than two words. He yes. was this constant mystery. But if he would have followed the typical advice and he would have become a mediocre networker. Yes. He might have been okay at it, but he yes. never would have been great, right? Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, Michael, listen, uh, this has been great having this conversation. So much to uh, to cover. And I know people will who are interested in this topic will be able to get something from the book. If people want to learn more about you or they want to uh, get the book, uh, how can they reach you and what's the best place to get the book? So one thing I did learn from the traditional uh, marketers is that you should always just have one call to action. So I could give you my company website. I could give you my website. I hope you put those all on the on the uh, page. But really, I would just suggest you go to Amazon, type in Michael F. Shine, S-C-H-E-I-N, and put the F in there because uh, there's another guy with my name. And, or type in the hype handbook and buy it and read it. And if you like what you hear, um, you know, my company, Microfame Media is in there. Look us up and get in touch that way. Love it. Simple, elegant, call to action and to the point. Michael, I uh, welcome the chance to continue this conversation. And thanks for so much for sharing these ideas from the book today. This really was. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Adapter's Advantage, a podcast from Alego. 
Stay connected by subscribing to the show at alego.com forward slash podcast, leaving us a rating and comment and sharing episodes you love. That helps us bring you more conversations about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember that one new idea can change your life.